Well, thank you so much, worship team. And um, as I told you earlier, we're going to be in the 12th chapter of the book of 2 Kings, the 12th chapter. Now, for those who haven't been following along with us, I'm just going to give a brief overview of, of Kings. The first king of Israel was the people's king, picked by the people. His name was Saul, many of you know that, and he reigned from around 1050 to 1010 B.C. And then after Saul came God's king, and that king was David. Remember him? David slew Goliath, and eventually he became king of Israel. And after David came Solomon, the wise king, who wrote many of the poet or poetical books of the Bible, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, etc. And he reigned from around 970 B.C. to 930 B.C. as a king. And then something happened to the 12 tribes of Israel. They split. And the book of Kings is examining that split On one hand, you have the northern tribes, ten of them. They're called the nation of Israel, or uh, they're called Israel here uh, as we trace through the book of Kings. And then, on the other hand, you have the southern kingdom, that's called Judah. Judah. And we've been examining over the last several months several of these kings. And uh, we've seen uh, what it is to live a godly life or to not live a godly life. And also, in these scriptures, First and Second Kings, we've seen many types and shadows of the reality that was to come. The greatest king of all, our king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And now we find ourselves in chapter 12. That's around 835 B.C. And if you recall last time, There was this young man named Joash who came to reign in Judah under a set of very uh, dark and mysterious circumstances. He was saved from uh, being killed and he was housed in the temple. And uh, Joash, at seven years old, is crowned king. And he has as a spiritual advisor the, the priest Jehoiada. And those are two people you're going to want to know uh, for today as we read through chapter 12 of 2 Kings. Here we go. Here's the word of the Lord, starting in verse 1. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second. Jehoash is actually Joash. And he is a king of Judah. See that? He was the king in Jerusalem. Just so you know, around this same time, and we'll study it at a later date, there's also a king of Israel, the northern northern tribe called Jehoash, but we're not dealing with him yet. We'll get to him in a little bit, maybe even today, but we'll see. So right now we're talking about the young boy Joash, who in the 12th chapter is called Jehoash, he becomes king and he reigns 40 years in Jerusalem. 
and his mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. But the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And Jehoash uh, said to the priests, verse 4, All the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money, each man's assessment money, and all the uh, money that a man purposes in his heart to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take it themselves, each from his constituency, and let them repair the damages of the temple wherever any dilapidation is found." Now in verse 6, now it was so by the 23rd year of King Jehoash that the priest had not repaired the damages of the temple. So King Jehoash called Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and said to them, why have you not repaired the damages of the temple? Now therefore do not take more money from your constituency, but deliver it for repairing the damages of the temple. And the priests agreed that they would uh, neither receive more money from the temple uh, nor repair the damages of the temple. Then, verse 9, Jehoiada the priest took a chest, bored a hole in its lid, and set it beside the altar on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord. And the priests who kept the door put there all the money brought into the house of the Lord. So it was, whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, that the king's scribes, or scribe, and the high priest came up and put it in bags and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. Then they gave the money which had been apportioned into the hands of those who did the work, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they paid it out to the carpenters and builders who worked on the house of the Lord, and to masons and stonecutters, and for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the damage of the house of the Lord, and for all that was paid out to repair the temple. Verse 13. However, There were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, trimmers, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, any articles of gold or articles of silver from the money brought into the house of the Lord. But they gave that to the workmen, and they repaired uh, the house of the Lord with it. Moreover, they did not require an account from the men into whose hand they delivered the money to be paid to workmen, for they dealt faithfully. The money from the trespass offering and the money from the sin offering was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. And so, uh, chapter 12 begins. I want to point out a couple things as we uh, begin here. I want to point out this. Now, you see this uh, uh, throughout the Old Testament. I think uh, back to the time that Moses was getting the instructions from the Lord about how to build the tabernacle, the tabernacle, uh, uh, which was the tent uh, that traveled with the Israelites. That is the same thing as the temple, except for it was transitory. You could, you could move it. Uh, it was mobile. Uh, you could move uh, the, the, the tabernacle. And in the book of Exodus, uh, God tells Moses all the fine details of what the tabernacle and the, the, the altar and the incense uh, uh, um, 
you know, the uh, incense that's uh, burnt to the Lord and the showbread and the candelabra and the laver and the, uh, you know, the fence and all the coverings and everything are described there. And then uh, they take up a collection. They take a, up a collection to uh, make this tabernacle. And the Bible, in a paraphrase here, tells us that the people gave so much that they had to tell them to stop giving. What a beautiful thing. And here we see that uh, uh, they're having sufficient funds, it looks like, uh, but they have people who are not uh, putting their hand uh, to the plow, so to speak. They're not uh, doing what God had asked them to do. But what you see throughout the Bible, and we've taught this in the New Testament as we've gone through the book of Corinthians, is, is that Christians, people, uh, uh, pe the people of God, and now on this side of the cross, those who call themselves Christians, who've been impacted by the Lord, who've surrendered their lives to the Lord, one of the great marks of the Christians, right, is that they're tremendous, cheerful, hilarious givers. And the Bible says in several places, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 9, it tells us this, Paul says, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes, that's important, in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God, God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always have sufficiency in all things. Uh, may have an abundance for every good work. Now, there's other places in the New Testament that talks about giving also to the people who teach you the Word of God uh, and the elders who are the spiritual leaders of the church. 1 Timothy 5 says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the Word and doctrine. For the Scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Of course, uh, as we uh, examine the New Testament, we see that the Lord is always concerned with those who are having problems helping themselves, who are oppressed like the widow and the orphan and the poor. And the Bible is uh, uh, chock full of places that uh, talks about uh, giving for those uh, uh, purposes to help those in need. But one of the things that we've always talked about as we examine all these scriptures is that giving is a biblical principle. A lot of people want to come and ask, well, what should I give? Should I give 10%? Should I give 5%? Uh, what should I give? And clearly, uh, the Bible in the Old Testament uh, marks uh, giving for the first fruits of your laborers up to 10%. But really, we talk about uh, here at Calvary Chapel uh, that we are grace givers, according to the New Testament. And grace givers are ones who want to give cheerfully. Of course, Jesus spoke about giving sacrificially. That was the greatest giving. And when he witnessed uh, uh, an older lady put in something that cost her much into the treasury, he marveled at her faith. And so he talked about sacrificially. Official giving, and as we examine the principles of the Lord, it's great and wonderful and good to give from our best. I always say this 
When I was growing up, I thought Sunday was the last day of the week. And we kind of just, uh, well, oh, we've had a fantastic weekend. We're kind of winding down here. And now Sunday is the day to just chill and do nothing and maybe watch some football. And of course, uh, it is kind of what the, uh, uh, you know, the Western world and maybe even the church has um, practiced as the Sabbath. But really, in the Bible, the Sabbath was Saturday. Now, what am I getting at? Well, listen, Sunday is the first day of the week, and it's the day in which we come together to pour out our hearts to God and to give him, give him our best and greatest. And so, as we're examining giving in the New Testament, we're seeing things like this. We're seeing that we're grace givers as we've been impacted by the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and he comes and gives us new life. One of the things that we like to do is give for his purposes. And we give out of the first and best of what we have. And it's a sacrificial giving. And as I read to you in 2 Corinthians 9, it's purposed in our hearts, which to me is... Uh, you have thought this through before you get to church. Whether you pass the plates or if you have a box in the back of the sanctuary like we do, you've thought this through and you've prayed about it and you've asked the Lord to show uh, you what you should put in the plate given your bills and responsibilities and yet uh, to give your best and greatest to the Lord, your first fruits. And you give in a cheerful way so that uh, the Lord's money would then be used for the Lord's purposes. And when you see it here, I want you to see something uh, uh, in this chapter, what this king used the money for. He used it for two purposes. I read them to you. I wonder if you caught it. If not, we'll clear it up for you. He, read, uh, he used the money to restore the temple of the Lord where the things of God were happening. The building fund. He used it for the building fund. Now, in America, we have two maybe uh, diametrically opposed uh, uh, extremes. We have people who are so, or churches, who are so hung up on what the building looks like, they pour everything, all their energy, all their resources into an edifice with all the lights and all the bells and all the whistles, and when in reality, what the building is to be used for is to proclaim the word of the Lord and to minister to people who need ministered to. And how that happens, uh, uh, what you do, what decisions you make as leaders of the church, as spiritual leaders, are motivated by the purpose of the ministry, which we find in the book of Acts, to keep teaching doctrine to get together in prayer and praise, to fellowship and to break bread together. And so based on that uh, 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 directive from the Lord as to what we're doing as a church in vision, that dictates what we do with the building. But yet some people spend so much on outlandish things that it has nothing to do with any of those things that the book of Acts tells us a church should be. But we have other people that don't take care of the building at all and just maybe just pray that the Holy Spirit would, uh, you know, just m uh, magically fix, you know, the mold in the back or the, the roof or, or, or whatever. And I think what the Bible is telling us here, first and foremost, uh, jo Joash spent 
the money to get the uh, temple in a position to where it was functional so that um, God's ministries could go out. And we're called, we know from the book of Acts, our ministry is to get the word of God out. So let's make a, a welcoming, comfortable place, but not too comfortable where we don't give reverence and awe to the Lord in listening to his word and being filled with his light and life and then going out and loving a hurting and dark world, dying world too. So that's one thing. But I want you to see the other thing that this king used this money for. He used it to pay the priests. Now see, that's okay. Remember, we read, the one who labors is worthy of his wages. And oftentimes... It even tells you right here. In such things as the trespass offering or the money from the sin offering, those were given to the priest. What would happen? Well, if someone committed a trespass, right, and uh, uh, the person who they trespassed against was gone or not, uh, 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 wasn't able to collect or something like that, the monies would accrue and the priests could have it. It says it in the Old Testament that that's okay. Or uh, if a sin was committed or something of that nature, right? Uh, though, uh, uh, those things, uh, if they couldn't accrue to the person who was sinned against or whatever, uh, then they would uh, accrue to the priests, and they could have that money lawfully under God's law. And it was okay. And here, the money from the trespass offering and the money from the sin offering wasn't brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. It was okay, the Lord said. See, that's the thing, is that we have uh, uh, pastors and missionaries all across the United States who are struggling to get by, maybe to meet their mortgage payment or to meet their health insurance payment or to meet their car payment or whatever, and they're pouring out their uh, hearts to the, to the Lord first and to their flock in equipping them for the ministry by the teaching of the Word, and they're scraping by. And here the Lord says, no, take care of them, not that they would live in a lavish lifestyle, but that they would not have to worry about those things so that they could go out and proclaim the word of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? And here we see that Joash, or in this chapter he's called Jehoash, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He was counseled by this priest, go back to verse 2, who instructed him. And what he did was, he had uh, the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money. If you went back to Exodus 30, verse 13, you'll see that this sort of atonement tax was placed on every uh, one uh, 20 years old and older were to pay a, a tax to the temple to basically just say, you, I've been counted, I live here, here's my temple tax. It's the census money, and so you have that uh, available uh, to uh, build this uh, Lord's house. And then each man's assessment money, which you can also find in Leviticus 27 too. It's an interesting, it's an interesting part of Scripture. If someone uh, makes a vow against a person, if, Lord, if you... Uh, uh, 
make it right between me and the person who I've uh, sinned against, Lord, if you could just make that right, Lord, I make a vow that I'll uh, uh, do my best and live for you, Lord. And the Lord says in Leviticus 27, the person you uh, implicated in that vow, they're valued. (laughs) And whatever their value was, just monetarily, not uh, uh, by the heart of the Lord, but whatever their value was, according to you know their work and their socioeconomic status, you'd actually pay a tax on that. You can look it up, um, Leviticus twenty-seven, verse two. And then again, all the money that a man purposes in the heart, what free will offerings. And that's an interesting thing in this current environment. How much should I give? Well, you should give gracefully as a as you've purposed in your heart, as a person who recognizes that Jesus became poor for you so that you could become rich. And I don't mean monetarily, but I mean in the heavenly places. And that can't, there can't be a, a price put on that. And so somebody who knows the reality of what Christ has done, purposes in their heart, wants to be a cheerful, graceful giver, and uh, they, they give to the Lord in a, uh, a consistent um, uh, manner. They faithfully, each month or each week, give to the Lord, and they put in the box the money that God's given them. And sometimes, sometimes, listen, there's special projects. Maybe there's a youth uh, uh, conference that's coming up in the summer or other things, and people give over and above what they normally give. But see, it's okay because It's not like people are pressing their thumb over top, you know, putting their thumb over top of somebody, pressing them to get them to to pay these things to the church. No, people, as the Lord puts it on their hearts, want to do it as a graceful giver. Here we see it in a beautiful way. Happened during the time of this young king who became an older king, of course. Interesting. Um, He started out so promising. We'll talk about this in a minute. But there is one thing that he didn't do. In verse 3, the high places were not taken away. And the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now, you can think of this in one of two ways. Some of the uh, things in the high places of Israel were... um, uh, Uh, pagan and uh, evil uh, poles that were um, set up to other gods, and maybe that's talking about this, but maybe it's not talking about that. Maybe it's still talking about worshiping the one true God, but remember, the people were required to worship the Lord the way in which the Lord said they were to worship him, and that required a coming back to Jerusalem several times a year. And we know from the Old Testament, especially in the northern areas, but it creeped into the southern area kingdom, in the northern area, they set up worship centers that weren't in Jerusalem, and that started to creep in, uh, in into the southern kingdom. And here, this uh, uh, priest, or excuse me, this uh, king didn't do away with those high places, and that's a, min- uh, 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 a sermon unto itself. Why? It's so American. The Lord's asked us to worship in a such and such a way, in spirit and truth, and to come together in a fellowship. Uh, don't forsake assembling together and to come together. And yet we have people who just simply won't go and fellowship at church. 
Maybe they go out in the golf course and they say, oh, this is what, where I can worship the Lord. Or maybe they go and hike in the mountains and say, this is where I can worship the Lord. And of course, you can worship the Lord there, but not uh, at the uh, expense of your time in fellowship with other believers. We want convenience instead of what the Lord wants. And so here's a great picture of that. And Joash let that stuff still go on. Now go down here to verse 6. By the 23rd year of King Jehoash, the priests hadn't repaired the damages of the temple. We don't know why. Maybe they were pocketing some of the money. Maybe they were just lazy. Who knows, but these priests hadn't done it. So the king called Jehoiada, the priest, and the other priest, and said to them, hey, how come you guys haven't repaired the damages of the temple? By the way, the companion verse or excuse me, the companion chapter to this chapter is found in 2 Chronicles uh, 24. And guess what? Uh, we're told that the temple needed repairs not only because just the time uh, 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 that had been erected, it's been erected at this uh, time that we're reading here in chapter 12, almost 100 years, but also because of the wicked queen Athaliah and her sons vandalized and desecrated the temple. You can read that in 2 Chronicles 24. So it needed repair. And we don't know why, but the priests didn't do it. It would be taken up later by a King Josiah, but for now, it says, Now therefore they didn't take, or do not take more money from your constituency, but deliver it for repairing the damages of the temple. And the priests agreed that they would neither receive more money from the people nor repair the damages of the temple. In other words, we're going to try a different solution. That's what they're saying right here, the, the author is. A different solution was arrived at, and here's the solution. Jehoiada, the priest, took a box with no lid to open. He just put a hole in it <laughs> and set it beside the altar on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord. And good financial uh, accountability here. The priest who kept the door, there were other people watching that box, so nobody stole out of it. There were priests around the door to watch the box. There all the money was brought into the house of the Lord. So that was whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest. Listen to this. How, how, is, how interesting is this? That the king scribed and the high priest, two people, came up and counted the money. Why did they do that? To safeguard no stealing. Two people were there to sign off on how much was in that box. Then they gave the money which had been apportioned in the hands of those who did the work who had the oversight of the Lord, and they paid it to the carpenters, of course, and to the masons and the stonecutters for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the damage of the house and for all that was paid out to repair the temple. Look, basically what this is saying is they took care of the structural damage first. They were smart. They were wise. They were faithful people who recognized in order to proclaim the Lord in this place, we need to get the uh, overall uh, uh, structural damage done before we make basins of silver or trimmers or sprinkling bowls or trumpets or gold, articles of silver. But they, verse 14, gave to the workmen and they repaired the house of the Lord with it. Moreover, they didn't require an account from the men into whose hand they delivered the money to be paid to workmen, for they dealt faithfully, which means that they picked faithfully. They didn't just pick willy-nilly for somebody to oversee this operation. They looked for faithful men 
who could be trusted with money to hand it out to pay these workmen for the work that they were doing. And then it says, the money from the trespass offering and the money from the sin offering was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. So there was still a mechanism to pay the priests as we talked about previously. It's good to pay and to take care of the people who are pouring out to you spiritually. Good lesson. Well, listen, you don't get this in this account, but in 2 Chronicles 24, we know at this point that the priest, Jehoiada, dies. He dies. And it actually says in 2 Chronicles 24 that the king, it actually says this, started listening to other people. And when he started listening to other people, they started to lead him into idol worship and some other things that were against God, which is fascinating. And then he even sent a prophet to them for repentance and those sorts of things. And the prophet was killed. And by the way, that was Jehoiada's son. And this brings up another issue that we should talk about. The Bible tells us in a lot of places, I'll read you some of them, or maybe just one or two of them. The Bible tells us in uh, several places all throughout that it's good to have wise counsel. It's good to have wise counsel. Uh, uh, Without counsel, Proverbs 15 tells us, plans go awry. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. Proverbs 20, verse 18, plans are established by counsel, but wise counsel wage war. And it's good. It is. And, And we see it with this king. He was a young guy. He was seven years old. Of course he needed counsel. And he attached himself to this priest. And he grew, and he did some good things, and he did some things for the Lord. But, but, but watch this. When the priest died, what took years and years to accomplish to get the house of the Lord built back up in a strong and sturdy fashion, watch what happens in just a matter of time. Just a few you know, a very short period of time. Watch this in verse 17. Haziel, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. Then Haziel set his face to go up to Jerusalem. That's Jehoash's kingdom. And Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred things that his fathers, Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred things, and all the gold found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and in the king's house. And he sent them to Haziel, king of Syria, as a tribute. And then he went away from Jerusalem. And this teaches us something great, I think. It is great to have wise counsel and a multitude of mature people. It's great to get counsel from from others. But at some point, at some point, the Bible tells us that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2 says. So while it is wise to have great, godly, wise counsel, we can't so attach ourselves to a spiritual mentor that we can't get along in the spiritual life without him or her. Because think about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus created a revolution, a movement that was that has continued on for all these years after he's gone. Of course, we have the Spirit of God with us, but look, it, he, he trained up these disciples to go and to minister because he was going to die and rise again, and he trained them up and sent them out. And of course, yes, we do have the Holy Spirit, and the Bible tells us we can do great works based on the power and strength of the Holy Spirit, but sometimes people get so attached to a spiritual mentor or a spiritual person that when that person goes away or dies or whatever, goes out of their life, they fall apart. Like, for instance, I'm happy to be your spiritual, you know, a visionary in some sense, lead servant. Uh, I want to serve you and to, to be your shepherd in the right way and the healthy sense and to build you up in the Word of God. But sometimes some people can get so dependent upon the pastor or the assistant pastor or the word, and they, they can't even move without. Uh, you know, seeking advice or help from them, when in reality, the first place we should go should be the Lord and ask Him for wisdom who says He'll give it liberally to us. Of course, if you need help or anything like that, we're happy to help you here and will help you here, but we are um, building up an army under the Lord's guidance as chief servants, this staff uh, that we've put together here uh, of leaders who want to build people up so they can walk strong and graceful in a dying and hurting world and to be equipped for their ministries. Such a beautiful thing. And that uh, leads us to another thing that you see all throughout this chapter. All throughout this chapter, isn't it? What do you see all throughout this chapter? You see the great principle of the New Testament, that we're all of one body, but we can't all be the head. Some of us are the thumb. Some of us are the leg. Some of us are the arm. Some of us are the fingers. Some of us are the eyes. And we all have different things to do, and we all pitch in and move uh, in, in the person and work of the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, not getting too far ahead or behind uh, the Lord, but moving all in the same direction in sharing God's love and light in a dying and hurting world, and then building people up in discipleship and then sending them out. And we're all doing it. Some of us are carpenters. Some of us, look at this, are builders. Some of us are masons. Some stonecutters. Some of us count the money. Some of us do the IT. Some of us do the filming. Some of us do the worship. Some of us clean the sanctuary. Some of us clean the bathrooms. Some of us set up chairs. Some of us teach. But we're all moving together in body life towards the same thing. We all love one another and support one another and exhort one another, and it's all important. And we all do our part, and we see it all uh, throughout this chapter. Well, what else? Well, check this out. Verse 19, chapter 12. Now, the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And his servants arose and formed a conspiracy and killed Joash in the house of the Milo, which goes down to Silla. Now remember, 
he had killed Jehoiada's son, a prophet. And so, uh, in response, uh, here, Joash is killed by servants and who formed a conspiracy in verse 24. For Josachar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servants, struck him. So they, he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Now, then Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Now, in chapter 13, we're going to move from the southern kingdom, this Joash or Jehoash, uh, to this one. Jehoaz, who reigns in Israel, the northern kingdom. Now, we're switching kingdoms here, so stay with me. In the 23rd year, verse 1, chapter 13, of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel and Samaria. He reigned 17 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who was the first king of the Israel kingdom or dynasty of the northern kingdom, who made Israel sin. He didn't depart from them. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. He delivered them into the hands of Haziel, king of Syria, and in the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, all their days. So Jehoaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened, for he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed them. Then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped. We don't know who the deliverer is, by the way. Under the hand of the Syrians, maybe Elisha, But anyway, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. Verse 6, chapter 13. Nevertheless, they didn't depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel sin, but walked in them. And the wooden image also remained in Samaria. That's northern of the kingdom. For he left the army of Jehoaz, only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots. By the way, under Ahab, they had thousands of chariots and horses. And you see what sin does and what evil does. It just wrecks your strength. And 10,000 foot soldiers for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. In other words, we would say they were blown away. (laughs) Now the rest of the acts of Jehoaz, all that he did in his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoaz rested with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. Then Joash, his son reigned in his place. Now remember, this isn't the same one. We're back at the kings of Israel. And here you have this son named Joash, who's also called Jehoash. Sorry, I'm just following the Bible. So that's why it's great to have a chart with you so you can follow along. But look at this. Jehoaz, who we just read about, was really a spiritual wreck. Guess what else? Verse 10, chapter 13, in the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, became king over Israel and Samaria, reigned 16 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He didn't depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel sin, but walked in them. And the rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did in his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers, then Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Okay, I ran you through this, because guess what? This son in the line was also a spiritual wreck. And we could do a whole sermon based on Ahab's life and what he left for his lineage after that, and all these people that came down after him, and, uh, uh, and also uh, the, the precedent that the first uh, king 
uh, of Israel set that just uh, Jeroboam that just kind of permeated the whole kingdomship. And so it tells you how to walk circumspectly yourself. You never know who's watching. But let's go on. And this is what I was moving us to. Elisha now is going to die. But even in death, there's victory. Verse 14 of chapter 13. Elisha had become sick. Elisha had become sick. Who's Elisha? Elisha is the prophet of God, the man of God in uh, uh, Israel. And he took over the mantle from Elijah. And Elisha had done a ton of miracles. He uh, healed some water when it was bitter in Jericho. He cursed his enemies and they were mauled by a whole bunch of bears or some bears. Do you remember that? He filled jars full of oil for a widow. Remember that? He brought Shunammite, uh, a Shunammite's son, back to life. Remember, there's this pot of stew, and he cured what the Bible calls death in the pot and made it good. He fed 100 men with 20 loaves. He did this. He healed Naaman of leprosy. Very famous story. He made axe head float to the surface. And other things. And he made many prophecies that came um, uh, to pass and came to light because he was a true prophet. He was a man of God during this time. And these kings respected him. Remember this? And here on his deathbed, one final miracle. Not even on his deathbed. We'll see it in a minute. Elisha had become sick with the illness, verse 14, chapter 13, of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel... Uh, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Now that, if you haven't been following with us, you should know. In 2 Kings 2, 11 through 12, Elisha had actually said that to Elijah as he was ascending up. And you can look that up. He actually said, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. In other words, this Israeli king, this northern kingdom king, is paying Respect and homage to this person of God. But really, if you read this in such a way, is he worried? Because the man of God gave credence to him and his armies. And now his armies are dwindling and he's thinking to himself, Oh no, the man of God's dying? The man of God's going away? I'm weeping because will there be enough chariots? And so he is paying homage, but you wonder if there's a selfish motive here. And look in verse 15, and Elijah said to him, listen, he doesn't say listen, but he says, take a bow and some arrows, take a bow and some arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, by the way, you're going to learn later, he has at least six arrows available. And he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand uh, uh, on it, and Elisha put his hands on it. On the king's hands. And it's as if here, Elijah is conferring to him God's blessing and authority here to defeat his enemies. He put his hands on the king's hand and he said, open the east window. And he opened it and he said, shoot. And he shot and he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. Why? Because Syria was to the east. He's saying... Now that you're shooting, I'm 
telling you that the Lord's going to give you deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek to bring deliverance. It doesn't say that, but it says, till you have destroyed them. And then he said, take the arrows. So he took them, and we know from what is going to be said here in a minute that there's at least six. So he took them, he, he took them, and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck the ground, or he struck three times, and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, well, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now will you strike Syria only three times? And folks, it's such an interesting piece of scripture that some people scratch their head about. What does this have to do? Well, you see, the Bible tells us that we have available to us all of God's riches in grace. We have the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead in us. And the Lord is only going to take you as far as you want to go with him. And often people just want to go, you know, on a scale of one to six, they want to just go halfway with him. And here the Lord's saying, man, if you would have just kept striking all the arrows, I would have given you everything, but you shortchanged me, the Lord said. You didn't think I was able, and you only struck three times, and the man of God is angry. You should have struck five or six times, then you would have struck Syria till you destroyed it, but now you'll strike only three times. Then Elisha died, and they buried him, and the raiding bands from Moab, the raiding bands from Moab, always an enemy of God on the other side of the Jordan, or God's people. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was, isn't this fascinating, as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders and they panicked. That's what's happening here. And they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. Where's Elisha? He's in a tomb. He's dead. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Isn't that interesting? What do you think the Lord is saying here? Well, listen, folks. All throughout the Old Testament, we see the people of God filled with a knowledge of resurrection power. What? Old Testament? Are you sure? Well, I think so. You remember the story in Genesis 25 when the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham, has a son named Isaac. And Isaac's off into his teenage years, and the Lord asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Well, they walk, and they get towards Mount Moriah, and they have a couple uh, servants with them, some lads with them, some guys with them. And right about that point, Abraham says to the people with him, he says, hey, we're going to go up to Mount Moriah for the sacrifice, and both of us, he says, we will be back. We'll be back. In other words, Abraham knew, not maybe all the details, but Abraham knew the Lord was powerful enough to save his son, even through death, and bring him back to life. Of course, we know the story. God provided himself the sacrifice, the ram in the thicket, and Isaac was spared. But Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham believed God could raise Isaac from the dead. Faith. Job, in one of his most famous scriptures or sayings, when he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, in Job 19, after God had stripped everything from Job. Do you remember this? 
In Job 19, after he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, go on and read verses 26 and 27 for yourself. But it basically says that my flesh will be destroyed, and yet in my flesh I will see God. Job knew it. How about this? David knew it. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. How long? Forever. And if you read it in conjunction with Psalm 16, of course it's a messianic prophecy. It says uh, that uh, uh, there will be no corruption. Uh, His body will see no corruption. Uh, Of course, David's would see corruption, uh, but it was ultimately fulfilled in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who died but rose again, but also David will live in eternity with a resurrected body, and he knew it, and guess what? Elisha and Elijah, they both had these sort of resurrection things. You, you remember the story. Elijah was uh, uh, when he uh, raid, raised the widow's son in uh, Zarephath, And then there was a similar thing for Elisha, his protege. He raised the son of a Shunammite woman. You remember that? But guess what? Each time that Elijah and Elisha performed those miracles by the power of God, of course, the prophets themselves were alive. And in this particular one, God removes all doubt about who's in charge of resurrection power. Because the prophet, the man of God, is dead. The man of God is dead. There's only one way we could say this one was raised from the dead right here, and it would only be by the power of God. And what a time, right, to speak of this. Last Sunday, we talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how important it is uh, in the uh, life of the Christian. In fact, Paul himself said, if there was no resurrection, our faith would be in vain. It'd be a waste. And we'd still be, check this, we'd still be in our sins, right? That's in Romans 10. We'd still be in our sins. And what are we to confess with our Mouth and believe in our hearts, he tells us in Romans 10 also, that Christ was raised from the dead. And when you believe that, the Lord comes to live in your life. He comes to live in your life, and now you have resurrection power. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that death has no sting. One writer put it this way, pretty powerful. Death pretends to be the Lord over us. It's not. God alone is the Lord over us. Another writer, or excuse me, another pastor said this. At the um, funeral of the United States Supreme Court Justice Lewis F. Powell Jr., when he died, there was a reverend named James C. Goodlow IV., James C. Goodlow said these words about the resurrection power of Christ. We rejoice in Christ's resurrection as the promise of our own, as the promise of resurrection of those whom we love, and as the promise of the resurrection of Justice Powell in that case. 
Death pretends to be the Lord over us. I'd read this earlier. It's not. God alone is the Lord over our lives. Death tries to have the last word about who we are. It doesn't. God has plans for our lives that even death can't destroy. Wow, that's powerful. Death, here you go, you ready for this? Death struts its seeming great power, but its power is broken. To Christ belongs the victory. Though death will lay claim to all of us, it will not hold us all, for we do not belong to death. We belong to God in life. We belong to God in death. And we continue to belong to God in the new life on the other side of death. Wow. Now, Jesus said it pretty plainly in John chapter 11, verse 25. He said it really plainly. And it's why we come here on a Wednesday night to worship together. It's why we get up on Saturday mornings to meet as men or as ladies and have prayer groups. It's why we praise the Lord in song. It's why we owe everything to God through Jesus Christ. It's this in John chapter 11, verse 25. He said this, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Here it comes. Very simple. Very simple, but so profound and so costly. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he's talking physically, he shall live. And whoever lives, verse 26, and believes in me shall never die. And then here comes the greatest question of all. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? You see, there's many people out here uh, during this crisis, this COVID crisis, and this quarantine, or whatever we're calling it, and they're hurting, and they're anxious, and they're fearful, and they don't know about life or death. And here we are with all of the answers Jesus gave them to us. Even if we would die physically, if we've surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ, guess what? We live forever. Death has no hold on us. Death has no sting. And what's fascinating about this is all the way back in 2 Kings chapter 12, God wanted you and I to know that only he can raise somebody from the dead. It's his power alone, and I'm convinced that's why Elisha was laying in a tomb. He and Elijah had done it before and resuscitated people, brought them back to life. Of course, those people died again. In fact, in the story we're reading now, when the man fell on Elisha, who was dead, he wasn't uh, resurrected in the sense that he was going to live uh, on the earth forever. He was resuscitated. He came back to life, but then he lived a life and died. Jesus Christ is the one who was resurrected to live for all time. And now he says in John 11, 25 and 26, that we, if we believe in him and surrender him, surrender to him, he's the resurrection and the life. He's the one who determines life. If you have the son, you have life. If he has you, you have life. 
resurrected forever. And the question is, do you have that? Do you have that? Do we have that? What does it require? It requires us agreeing with God that we're sinners, that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Our hearts are deceptively wicked. Who could know it? Just, we've all gone astray and gone our own way. We've gone our own way. We've gone astray from God. We've missed the mark. We've fallen short of all that he has for us. If we've sinned in one area, we've sinned in all, and the penalty for that is spiritual death or separation from God for eternity. But here, Jesus promises us uh, eternal life with him in communion with God, the Father, forever. What does it take? It takes Romans 10. It takes us to confess with our mouth, believe in our heart that he died and he rose again. And may it be the anthem song of everything we do from now on. We, we agree with God that we're sinners. We turn towards him and it's our anthem song. It's his death and resurrection so our sins are forgiven and we've come back, we've come back to God. And now he puts his Holy Spirit in here so that the building is not the church, but the people are the church. And we use the building to proclaim his glories and to build people up and then send them out. And that's the message of these chapters. And so we're asking you right there, wherever you're sitting, do you feel restless or sad or lonely or unsettled? And you've never given your life to the Lord. Well, the answer is, is because your sins have never been forgiven by him and The chief need of man and women is to ask for forgiveness, repent, and move back towards him and come into a relationship with God. He redeems us then and puts us back into the game of life in the way in which he intended for us to live, filled up with him, fully ablaze for him, so that in the middle of this pandemic or any situation that you're going through, It's not that God moves you out of it, but in the middle of the storm or the trial or the tribulation, he gives you peace. He gives you his presence. He's the God of all comfort, and your sins are forgiven, and you're living for him. And death no longer has any hold over you or me or us. And so I'm inviting you to do that tonight. If you've never surrendered your life to the Lord, Do it tonight. Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up and lead us in a song of blessing as we move out from here. But it's Wednesday. And if the Lord chooses not to come back until we meet again, He's asking us to go out and to share his love and light in a hurting and dark world. But before you do that, you must be forgiven. So I'm going to pray it now. You pray it with me. And if you do pray that prayer, I'm asking that you contact the church. You contact us. You call us. You send us an email. And you can find that information at the end of this video. We love you. Anything you need 
we're here for you. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this time. And I just pray that anyone here who would want to confess you as Lord and Savior would do that tonight, would give their heart saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I ask you to come into my life and be the Lord and Savior of my life. Fill me up with your Holy Spirit. Help me to move out and to live as you've asked me to live. Fully forgiven forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.